Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us. I'm Rod Zeeb, the founder and CEO of the Heritage Institute. And with me today is Paul Binion, who I've known for like 20 years or more <laughs> together in a couple of different settings. Uh, so welcome, Paul. Thank you, Rod. Thanks for taking the time to be here. It's it's interesting now, Paul will, will explain a little bit uh, about Hanlon and, and investments who you, who you work with. But Paul has been involved with us since the very beginning. And as you all know, our focus is all on, you know, what do the clients want and what's the, their, their desired outcomes? And we uh, we were both mentored by a guy named Jack Beatty back in the day who would say, you know, your clients don't care what you do. Even if they ask you what you do, they don't care. What they really want to know is, what do you do for me? And you don't know what you do for them until you ask them enough questions so you can get their desired outcomes and be able to provide what it is that they want. So with that kind of a frame, that's really where you guys still start, right? I mean, that's where you start is, what do you want? I mean, what where are you coming from? Yeah, absolutely. I think the genesis of our of our relationship, our friendship, Rod, really started with the like-minded passion that what was being served up, be it the estate planning side and the asset management side, was really disconnected from an aging, an increasingly aging baby boom population. I think what Heritage has done. Heritage Institute's done, and I, in my past formal life, and now with my new firm, Hanlon, has done is is to kind of morph the conversation um, and marry the two together in a much more meaningful way. To your point, no one cares what you do; they just care what's in it for them. And so, I think the success for a, a client, uh, ironically, is very much wrapped up in the success of our two firms. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not mutually exclusive; they they very much jive together. Um, you don't have to have a money first objective or philosophy to to achieve uh, stellar results and to bring value. That, quite frankly, as the Heritage Institute preaches, when you remove the money from conversations, oftentimes you get much cleaner, clearer conversations uh, that uh, are much more meaningful to the family. And, and the title of this is Connecting Clients' Values and Beliefs to the Structure of Their Income Plans. How do you guys do that? I mean, that's that's what you do. It is, and it, and it really starts off with the whole mantra of the Heritage Institute, you know, better better listening, better conversations, better outcomes, right? So, uh, you know, as the old adage goes, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth because we're supposed to listen twice as much, right? So, and I know it's unfortunate that that's not necessarily the case. And I think partly, and not to get too uh, deep and too off subject, but uh, this is a very much a male-dominated uh, industry, the, the advisory world. And we're uh, men are hunters and gatherers. We're problem solvers. We're not listeners. Uh, we're, we tend not to be very empathetic. Uh, we rather tell you answers before we even hear what you need, and, and that's been accepted for 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 heck, hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Uh, unfortunately, in the new the new world order, that's actually not really very beneficial. Um, so what we're doing at Hanlon is very much rooted in the DNA of the Heritage Institute, which is let's listen first. So for instance. Data gathering is important, but data gathering is very much like estate planning. It's only useful in the extent of the information you're getting. It doesn't actually do anything really that valuable outside of the information you're gathering. Just like an estate plan does nothing more than just create the order of execution at death of passing of wealth. It doesn't create the, the blueprint for the family dynamic and the family vision statement and all the things that are important. It doesn't pass the values with the valuables. Um, and that's unfortunate. And I think that's the same thing we're trying to do with Hamlin. If we just manage wealth for people, uh, one could say that everybody wants to grow money and not lose it. Mm-hmm. Okay, just like everyone in estate planning wants to basically pass as much money tax-free to next generation. But 
it, it doesn't actually get to the essence. It doesn't actually get to what are you personally trying to do. And income planning does, which is why we've kind of morphed. And I spent the last 20 years of my professional career and even my personal life really uh, migrating towards the idea of a better listening, better uh, conversation, better outcome. Uh, because I think it's what everybody wants. It's very much in the client's best interest and the family's best interest. And it benefits everybody involved because it allows you to be more useful. And if you understand that, you can do a different investment policy. If you understand where they're really coming from, as opposed to just, I want to make more money or you know, whatever. Great point, Rod. An investment policy statement really looks very much like an estate plan. It's a legal execution that allows multi-generations to follow rules, but it doesn't get to the essence of the underneath uh, motivations and values and stories and experiences behind the wealth accumulation, the sacrifices. Income planning does to some degree because it allows us to start hearing stories like, I grew up uh, in a family had very little means, but a lot of love. And I've taken that to a, a realm where I've gotten, I've got a lot of means. And not only do I want to outline income for my family today, but also for future fam families so they don't suffer the way we suffer. And yet, I want to do it in a way that doesn't necessarily damage the drive and motivations that are the very fabric of mankind. Um, I don't want to say that handling gets that extent involved because that would be not accurate. Um, but we start the process. We start the conversation with the advisor. We move away from you want to make 100000 a million or a million 10 or 10, 20. We move away from that, the obvious. We move away from how does that work? What's it look like? What does legacy look like? Um, in fact, just on Tuesday of this week, I had a conversation with new advisors or partnering with Hanlon about once we get past the income planning, we can very much then focus on the legacy planning, the extent of what happens when you are okay, um, which is the biggest question we're answering as a group is, am I okay? Will I be okay? And if this happened again, will I still be okay? That's the essence of what income planning does. It frees up the mind and soul to think about bigger, more relevant, uh, multi-generational issues like legacy. And that, and a lot of that comes back to some of the stuff that Jack used to say. If people aren't comfortable that they're okay, then they can't look at the bigger picture. I mean, you know, they can't really get into what do I want for multiple generations for my family? What do I want for philanthropy? What do I want for, you know, they're focused on, am I okay? And that's Absolutely. really what, where you're focused I mean, with income planning. That's where you start. Yeah. There's a, another great phrase of many great phrases, which is uh, charity begins at home. Most people are not charitably inclined until they feel comfortable. That doesn't mean necessarily rich. Right. They're not actually necessarily connected. It means comfortable with one's state in life and one's future state, giving one the, the freedom, um, the clarity to basically say, now I want to give back. A lot of times it's executed through life insurance policies that are given uh, to charities and or just while you're alive, charitable intents. Uh, so one of the things we're trying to do as a firm is we're trying to give the advisor clarity for their client to allow them to have that freedom have those conversations with themselves and then maybe to be so bold as to actually bring a family in through a family retreat family heritage day which is what the heritage institute preaches right. and advocates um you you can't do that in our opinion until you have that that freedom in your mind you got that baseline of we're okay we're you know we can do the things we want to do okay so now from the advisor professionals standpoint subtlety not being one of my one of my great strengths why should anybody care what makes this important Fantastic question, because we all know that Dell, you know, 
versus the devil you don't know is an easier state in life to be, right? I mean, we have plenty of people complaining about friendships, marriages, uh, their jobs, all kinds of things, and yet never change, right? So I guess one of the things to do is to try to empower people to want to change and make change. But yeah, I mean, the single biggest distractor of the mission of the Heritage Institute and Hanlon is, well, I've always done it this way. Why would I change? Or you get the, well, I've inherited these assets from my from my father, my mother, my grandparents. Good enough for them. Why not good enough for me? And it's it's a challenging conversation to have. But what worked 100 years ago isn't necessarily the same formula that's going to work today or 50 years from today. But again, to your point, you do have to show what's in it for them. What's in it for them is, again, clarity, peace of mind, comfort, being at peace with your wealth. As, as you know, for your experience, Rod, most people, many people are not comfortable with the wealth that's right. been created. They're certainly not comfortable with the passing of that wealth to a generation who may not understand any of the sacrifices, the histories, which was the whole genesis of the Heritage Institute, right? To, to create a forum of passing that kind of conversation to future generations. And I, I, on a much lesser, much lesser extent, Hanlon is doing the same thing with what we're trying to do, which again is kind of why we've been friends and I'll call it admirers, if you will, for the past 20 years, because yeah. there is much power in the two messages of these two firms. And when you look historically, I mean, you know, uh, this isn't kind of a new thought. I mean, this is proven to work over time. It is one thing to have a theory or a thesis. It's another thing to have true live experiences. I know while our relationship goes back 20 years, I know you've been doing this for way longer than that. And you have oodles and oodles and books and books filled with stories of you and Perry and Jack and others in the organization having live, real life examples of success, people crying. I've been to meetings of the Heritage Institute over the last 20 years where families were up there crying patriarchs of families, tough, rough guys who started businesses were sobbing their eyes out. Again, the, the, the whole motivation is not to make people cry, but there's nothing more pure than someone crying, in my opinion. That's the ultimate uh, example of someone being vulnerable, especially when men cry, because men don't cry. We all know that. So I think there's a lot of um, real examples. And so who are we to argue with that? Who are we to argue with all the proof? Uh, the smart person would say, all that proof obviously means I should change. And while I'm stuck in my old ways, I should probably do everything within my power to to evolve and to change. Because otherwise, I'm going to be very little help to anybody going forward. And, and given that, again, so how does it really work? I mean, how does it work if they do change? They do. Um, sometimes painfully slow. <laughs> um, I think what the Harris Institute has done is to accelerate the, the speed uh, we are trying to do the same thing. We're trying to accelerate the acceptance and speed of change by introducing and having adopted new ideas of how wealth should be managed. We're not in the wealth creation business as much as we are in the wealth preservation business. It was a, a saying I picked up on my past firm. We're not the we're not in the get rich business. We're in the stay rich business. And you know from your experience, what is it? Uh, first generation makes it. Second generation, second generation yeah. spends it. Third generation loses it. Whatever, however that goes. Yeah. Yeah, I loved, uh, what was it, Spain 1,500 years ago to quote that uh, first generation trader, second generation gentleman, third generation beggar. There's a reason we have that because it's true. And <laughs> so the question then, be, and the other thing I found fascinating about what you guys do, Rod, is if you were to ask a patriarch or matriarch of a family, if their ambition goal, uh, if their mission statement vision was to bankrupt their third generation and create absolute complete misery with the wealth they've created, we can pretty much say zero families would have right. that as the mandate. 
Right. And yet you go through all the really wealthy, well-known families, the, the books you guys recommend at the Heritage Institute um, about, you know, about all the different, you know, locally here, we've got the DuPont family and we've got, you know, a fair share of horrific stories about the wealth that was created and what the horrific things that came of that wealth. Again, nobody wants to be that. And while we're working at Hanley with a, with a, uh, a different genre of wealth, we're not typically working with uh, the billionaire for sure. Uh, but we're working with pretty much mostly millionaires and certainly millionaires next door, mm-hmm. people who work 40 years, who accumulated, don't even consider themselves to be millionaires or wealthy. That's, uh, that is also a challenge to handle that kind of money and to, and to, to steward that. Yeah, I remember working in a, I was doing a workshop with a bunch of families. Um, they were at you know, round tables. And I said, okay, as a group, decide how much money do you think it takes to hurt like an 18 to 21 year old kid, 22 year old kid, if they inherited it. And so they all did their thing. And um, the highest number that they came back with was $100,000. Because, you know, one of them, I said, really? And and one goes, well, think about it. You know, my my son right now is 18. He's getting ready to go to college. If I give him $100,000 today, you think he's going to go to college? You know, know? and so then the question is, okay, so if you're going to leave more than $100,000, what do you think? You know, should we be, you know, because when you ask those questions and you kind of hit it earlier, a lot of times the answers you get are all negative. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to be trust fund babies. I don't want to take away their incentive. I don't want, I don't want, I don't want. And you've got to get them then focus on, okay, so what do you want? You know, what's the purpose of doing this investing and making it so that it's there? That's a surprising number, about $100,000. I know, it yeah. shocked me. <laughs> not a lot. It's, it's not a lot. It's a lot. Don't get me wrong, but it's not a lot. Um, and to have someone's life destroyed by it. Uh, and I guess to some degree, it depends on how old the, the child is. Uh, an 18-year-old is going to act differently than a 28-year-old. But one of the things that was interesting, when they took away the um, stretch IRA, mm-hmm. which was indefinite period times of 10 years, the big pushback was it's going to ruin people's, well, when they inherit that money and have to force it out within 10 years, it's going to dramatically, or potentially, or dramatically change the tax burden. Uh, and that was the big don't do it. In essence, what it's really done probably is it's it's forced a lot of money into a family that they're not prepared to, to, to receive. Remember, we get jobs for our entire lives, starting with the lowest paying job typically in our earliest years and the highest paying job at the end. So you guys have a, a very, very, uh, what I thought was a genius term, which was sudden wealth syndrome, a- affluenza. Mm-hmm. Affluenza was typically lottery winners who won large sums of money very quickly and typically almost 100% of them became bankrupt and incredibly unhappy. Athletes, people who receive large sums of money very quickly. But the same could be said with someone inheriting an IRA in their 20s. Right. Um, over, over the 10-year period, it still has the same effect of creating uh, some syndrome of wealth being generated and the person's not prepared to handle it. Again, ask a mother or father if that was the intended outcome of having an inherited IRA past children. I don't think one person would say, yes, the, the intent was to destroy my child's tax rate, great unhappiness. No. An interesting while, and I, I remember uh, Tom Fowler, one of our meetings, was talking about somebody that the 18-year-old kid inherited. I can't remember how much it was, but it was, it was a chunk, but it wasn't a huge chunk. And he was just getting ready to go to college, and he didn't. <laughs> you know, he spent the next two years you know, blowing all his money with all his friends. And so two years later, he was broke. But he didn't want to go back to college because now all of his friends were juniors and seniors and he was going to start as a freshman. He said, you know, this gift from dad without anything behind it, or grandfather, I guess it was, totally ruined the kid. And he said, he said, this grandfather, if you were to talk to him, 
that's the last thing he wanted. He wanted to give the kid a step up, not a step back. So, and you know what's really sad too, Rod, is you don't you don't get a chance to redo that once it's done. Right. Like to your point, that 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 kid by only two years of his life has passed by. It has created a fundamental change in the way he thinks about going to school. Likely meaning he doesn't go to school, and, and who knows what that changes. And um, it, again, obviously, how one is affected probably is a function of how much they receive and how early they receive it. But nonetheless, it's still going to create something. Money was really designed to be a a vehicle of change in and ability to to do something positive with it. In essence, it typically does the exact opposite, opposite. So one of the things we have to be very careful of at Hanlon when we're doing income planning and talking about management of wealth is how big can this bucket be, needs to be, and more importantly probably is what happens to it. Everyone, I'd say probably 80% of the people we work with, uh, the children are the benefactors of money at death. But when you start having conversations about, okay, well, how are they gonna receive it? They're like, I, I, what do you mean? And like, so you're dead. So you have a person who they've never met. Let's call that the, an attorney. They've never met this attorney. He's going to bring them into an office, call them, text them, or even Zoom them and tell them they've inherited a million dollars. Is that really, in your mind, the best way for your, your children to receive that kind of information? And, or would it make sense to have maybe more of a rule book and more of a, some counseling from you as a parent uh, before it happens? Most people agree with the latter. And yet, when you talk to them, what, what have they done about that? It's using nothing. They created they created an estate plan, a trust, living wills, advanced directives, and they kind of stopped. Well, it was interesting at the we just had a, a meeting of uh, of our HDP, master HDPs, and one of them put it in a different context because when a lot of times we say, okay, so look down the road twenty years and what's going to happen, you know. And she flipped it and said, okay, so imagine you died yesterday. Now what's it look like? Yeah, and that really changes. <laughs> it's like whoa. <laughs> Well, Rob, I'm sure you're the same way. I, I know my wife and I struggle with what it looks like for our kids. And um, unfortunately, a lot oftentimes you kick the can down the road because life gets in the way. And as they say, right. life has a habit of getting in the way. Unfortunately, you don't know when you're going to be taken, right? So it's it's one of these things better. So we have people who will say, well, I, you know, I'll do my income plan, you know, next, you know, next year or I'll, you know. You know, I'm only 55 years old. Why would I need this? Right. And when you get these kind of excuses, um, what we refer to as stiff arms. But unfortunately, tomorrow you may not have time to do it. And and oftentimes you may not be dead. You may just be incapacitated right. and in a position not to do it. So as they say, don't wait because if you wait too long, I mean, Jack was taken early. Jack Beatty was taken early right. as we all know, right? And while Jack accomplished a ton I bet you Jack had things he wanted to accomplish before he was taken, right? So, as I say, there's no time like the present. Yeah. And now, when professionals work with you, financial advisors work with you, how do you help them with this? Well, I think one of the biggest things, Rod, is just identifying and listening to what they've been, what they've been doing and maybe sharing with them what they could be doing. Certainly, an introduction to the Heritage Institute, it makes sense. I mean, again... We can't do that until they feel comfortable with the whole conversation about what they're supposed to be doing as advisors. Right. And many advisors, as you know, Rod, are still asset gatherers. In fact, you still have a term where you're an asset gatherer or an asset manager. An asset gatherer is still considered someone just gathers. An asset gatherer is really someone who counsels, consults, they oftentimes have a confidant next to the CPA. That's the person who's mostly responsible for the success and or failure of a client family. So 
when they get that and they come to us, they say, I want you to help me. I like the idea of partnering, the idea of collaborating and coordinating the effort. I like the idea of building a scalable and, and uh, uh, leveraging my time. Um, then they say, okay, what do we do? And then we say, well, you really need to meet Rod Z with the Harris Institute because they're the source expert when it comes to these conversations transcending the wealth. Remember uh, Tom Fowler's definition of the trusted professional or trusted advisor, whatever you want to call him, is if you're the person that they call, no matter what comes up, even though it's not something you do, <laughs> you know, because they trust you, they go find whoever it is that they need to talk to. But that's really, you know, the position you want to be in is you want to be the person that they call. You know? Absolutely. You see that in movies all the time. A wealthy family, someone gets in trouble, the, the attorney is the first one calls. Um, it's interesting too, Rob, because we believe in this so much in handling that we source out all the money management. We ourselves don't manage the money. We manage the big strategic, what we call asset location decisions, not the asset allocation. Mm -hmm. But the managers themselves that we hire, and that could be everything from Northern Trust, who obviously is one of the, the elephants in the room when it comes to wealth transfers going back to the robber barons. But Vanguard, BlackRock, you know, Dorsey Wright, Beaumont, Russell Wilshire, Ocean Park. There's a lot of managers we work with. But we source it out because if we're going to be managing money, we too fall victim right. to being conflicted. We need to hire people and then we can say to an advisor and the client, you have our full attention because we're no longer making management decisions. We can now manage the asset location and the asset distribution and the introduction to the Harris Institute. So we, we are very much practicing what we preach in the fact we're not a money manager per se. We're the manager of the managers. Right. All right. So what are a couple of things you'd like people to walk away from this going, okay, I got that. Well, I think the, the the most basic and easiest thing would be to if, if you if you're listening and you're hearing what you believe is relevant in your world, and hopefully it is. You're picking up the phone and calling us. Yeah. You're either calling the Heritage Institute directly, or you're calling Hanlon, uh, or you're calling Paul Binion. You're calling somebody. You're not just listening and saying good information, thank you, and moving on. Because again, life will get in the way. The takeaway is pick up a phone, call. Uh, from there, who knows what happens? My guess is we have conversations, we listen, we have better conversations, and you actually get something valuable out of this. Um, if not, as they would say in sports, no harm, no foul. But there's more harm in not doing something than actually acting. And uh, this is another kind of testimony to collaboration. I mean, you know, nobody can do it all. And that's the thing a lot of professionals think that they need to do it all. And there's no way they can. I mean, no institution can do it all. So like you said, call somebody who can and, you know, work with them. And uh, so now to get a hold of you, it's Hanlon.com, H-A-N-L-O-N.com. And so your email then is just pbinion at Hanlon? P-B-I-N-N-I-O-N at Hanlon.com. We also have a second email address, Rod, which goes to the entire team. It's team, T-E-A-M, my last name, Binion, B-I-N-N-I-O-N, at Hanlon.com. Okay. Those are the emails. Probably the easiest way to get us is by email, yes. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time because it is, you know, it's it's nice to see as you're going across all the different disciplines and things, how this all meshes together. And there's a lot of professionals that are heading in the same direction, but all have different expertise. And that's yeah. what makes this powerful is when you have that team that everybody's kind of talking the same language and everybody's collaborating with each other and not competing. Which is a wonderful thing. And there's, you know, other organizations. We were, in fact, uh, we just at the conference, uh, the, the first session was with uh, uh, John A. Warnick and I and Lori. You know, so you have the Purpose Planning Institute and you had us. And, and these are all organizations that are there to help 
professionals get it, what it is that they want. And we don't do it. I mean, I'm not a financial advisor. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a, used to be an attorney, but I'm not, you know, I don't do any of that stuff anymore. We are there, you are there, PPI, you know, uh, AIP, there's all these different organizations that are there to help people once they recognize, okay, this is where who I want to be and this is where I want to take my clients. Uh, as a parting comment, that's the very first lesson that was learned my first meeting with Harris Institute in Portland, Oregon, 20 years ago, which was the how a team can work, the definition of a team versus people just come together and pretend they're a team. You know, truly efficient, coordinated teams are much more valuable to anybody than a just a group of random people, many of them competing with each other. Right. All right. Thank you very much for your time. And hopefully people will get in touch with you or get in touch with us. Right. My pleasure. Thank you.